I live in a city of 25 million people. Uh, these are people who are from all over the world. Uh, it's not just uh, local, national people. It's people from uh, every continent on the planet except for uh, Antarctica. Uh, people from uh, many different countries come to study and, and work there. And of course, they all have different beliefs, different cultures, different values, different ways of thinking. And in that kind of context, I think a lot of the people in my city treat religion like, like we might treat a buffet. Uh, maybe that's the case here. Maybe you know people like that. Just people who think of religion in, in that way. It's, 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 like a, it's like a buffet. All the religions are just sort of kind of laid out on a table, and all of them are, are essentially uh, equal uh, to one another. And you can just sort of look at all the different options, and you can kind of just pick and choose whichever one you think is most right for you, whichever one makes you feel right, or whichever one helps you to do what is right, or to live what is right. You just pick whichever one. And of course, in, in some contexts, we can even kind of mix and match a little bit. So, you know, I like this aspect of Buddhism, but I like this aspect of Christianity. So I'm going to take those, add a little bit of syncretism into it, and this is my religion. And it's really no better than your religion. It's just the religion that I happen to have. They're all pretty much equal. It's whatever works for you. I wonder if there's anyone in, in this room this morning that thinks that way. Well, if so, it, it's actually not all that different from the way that people viewed religion 2,000 years ago when Paul wrote his letter to the Colossian church, uh, which is the letter that we're going to be looking at this morning. You see, the, the primary problem in the background of Colossians, the, the problem that that Paul wrote to address is that there were some within the church who had kind of adopted this buffet style of religion. They had this buffet style of religious mentality. Basically, uh, some false teachers were wanting to combine their faith in Jesus with other popular religious aspects of the day. And so they were tempted to believe that this buffet style of religion would help them reach some sort of greater spirituality or fulfillment or happiness. Oh, I wonder if any of that resonates with anyone in this room, that all religions are basically the same. You know, it's not some people think that one religion is the best. Basically, the, the purpose of religion is to help some people to live rightly. Maybe, maybe that's how... Some of you this morning view religion. Probably, though, for most of us in, in this church, uh, those of us who are Christians, that's not the mentality that we adopt. But do you ever doubt? Do you ever doubt whether your belief in Jesus is the true belief? Is Jesus really the one and only way to God? Or you may wonder, is it possible that I can actually find true fulfillment in Jesus alone? 
Our text this morning is Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 to 23. So if you have your Bibles, you can, you can open there. Uh, Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 through 23. And our text this morning can rightly be described as a feast. It's not a buffet. It is a feast. Paul wants to invite us to enjoy a life with Christ and a life with Christ alone. I want to read Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 to 23, so if you'd stand uh, with me as we read through this passage together. It says this, Paul writes, He, that is Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him, if indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. You may be seated. I think the, the main point of this text, and hopefully therefore the, the main point of this sermon, if you're taking notes, is this. It's what you can write down. Jesus is the central figure in history. So center your lives on him and never look back. Jesus is the central figure in history. So center your lives on him and never look back. I think that's the the main point. I have two points for us this morning to consider as we look at this text. Point number one, Jesus is supreme. Jesus is supreme. I'm going to go ahead and give you point number two, Jesus is sufficient. So you have both. Jesus is supreme and Jesus is sufficient. We'll consider this first point first, Jesus is supreme. Paul actually begins his letter to the Colossians by by thanking uh, God for the Colossian Christians' faith in Jesus and their love for all the saints. If you go back up to the beginning of of, uh, the chapter, that's exactly what Paul is doing. And he says that their faith and their love in Christ all stems from the hope that they have in Christ. Why is Jesus worth hoping in? This morning, if, if you're joining us uh, and you're not a Christian, I wonder how much you know about Jesus. Or maybe you don't know much at all. Well, if that's the case, you've, you've picked a, a good week to come because our text this morning is very clear about who Jesus is. You may be here and maybe you know some things about Jesus. Maybe you even respect him some, but you wonder why Christians often make such a big deal out of Jesus. I mean, do, 
do Christians really have to say that Jesus is supreme, like I just said? That he's better than all the religious teachers and all the other gods out there? I'd like to show you from the Bible why we say that Jesus is not only better than the teachers and the gods of this world, but he is the only voice worth following in this life. And it all has to do with who Jesus is. Look through verses 15 and 18. Just kind of let your eyes gaze through those verses. Underline every time you see the phrase, He is. It's repeated four times in four verses. See, the, the aim of this passage is to tell us who Jesus is. If we strive to understand these statements in Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 to 20, a picture is going to emerge concerning who Jesus is, and that picture shows us that Jesus is Lord, that He is supreme. And Paul establishes this truth with two steps, which are our sub-points this morning. Sub-point number one from verses 15 to 17, Jesus is supreme over creation. Jesus is supreme over creation. Look at verse 15 at the first he is statement. Paul says that Jesus is the image of the invisible God. In Hebrews chapter 1 verse 3, which we read a few minutes ago, the author captures the exact same idea. Jesus the Son, he says, is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being. When Paul says here that Jesus is the image of the invisible God, that's exactly what he means. When the Bible uses this word image, it typically means an image that often represents something else or someone else. So Nebuchadnezzar's statue in Daniel chapter 3, if you remember that, is said to be an image. It represented him, and people were to bow before that image that represented the king. In Genesis chapter 1, mankind is created in the image of God and Of course, the the point of that passage is not that God somehow looks like us as if God has a physical body. The the point is that we somehow represent God on earth. But unfortunately, human sin has distorted our image of God. But this is not the case with Jesus. Jesus is the original image, the perfect image, the exact original representation of God. And unlike us, Jesus has not been distorted by sin. So friends, if if you want to know what the Christian God is like, all you have to do is look to Jesus. The Gospel of John tells us that no one has ever seen God, and yet Jesus says in John chapter 14 verse 9 that we can see and know God by looking at Him, at Christ. Unfortunately, uh, many people reject Christianity because they, they often uh, look into the lives of Christians and they see what they think, uh, and, and sometimes really is there, uh, hypocrisy and judgmentalism and legalism, and they decide that they, they really don't want to have anything to do with Christianity because of the Christians. Well, the problem with that is that we Christians were never uh, we never claim to represent God perfectly. But we see and, and we sin in these ways and other ways, and, and while we hope to repent and we want to live as God calls us to, we continue to sin. 
But if you want to know what the Christian God is really like, you don't look to other Christians. You look to Jesus. You look to the one that the Bible says is the exact image of the invisible God, Jesus Christ himself. Everything Jesus said and did perfectly images the one true God. And you can learn about him and thus learn more about God by just reading any one of the four Gospels. So this morning, if, if you're here and you're not a Christian, my encouragement to you would be to look at Jesus and learn about God. Maybe you can ask the friend that brought you or you can ask one of the pastors of this church uh, to read one of the Gospels with you so that you can learn more about Jesus and so learn about God. We see next in verse 15 that Jesus is the firstborn of all creation. Now, sometimes that, that word firstborn causes problems for people. Uh, various cults and heresies, uh, such as the, the Jehovah Witnesses, for example, uh, for example, they have tried to wiggle out from underneath Jesus' supremacy by wrongly using verse 15 to suggest that Jesus is just another part of God's creation. But firstborn here in verse 15 has the same meaning it does in Psalm chapter 89, verse 27, in which King David is said to be the firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth. That's what firstborn means here, that Jesus is the highest, the supreme one over all creation. That's actually pretty clear if you just sort of continue reading. It's a good Bible study tool for you. If you come to a confusing verse, just keep reading. It often explains itself. And the same thing happens here. I mean, look at verse 16. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. Everything that has been made was made by Jesus, through Jesus, for Jesus. I love how Paul piles this truth on with all the repetition in verse 16. Jesus created all things, and if that's not clear enough for you, he created everything that's on, that's on earth and everything that's in heaven. And if that's not clear enough for you, he created everything that's visible or invisible, whether you can see it or not. All of that was created by Jesus. And in case, in case that's not clear enough for you, thrones and dominions and rulers and authorities, all of it created by Jesus and for Jesus. Why does Paul repeat himself here? Well, Because he's raising a banner over the heads of these Christians, announcing that Jesus is supreme. He wants them to see it. He wants them to know it. He wants them to believe it. He wants them to live like it's true because, of course, it is true. All those terms there in verse 15 are, are getting at the same idea, that the world is not governed by any other powers, whether they're visible powers or invisible power. It's governed by Jesus alone. The world is not governed by fate or karma or even what goes around comes around. The world is governed by Jesus alone who rules perfectly with grace and justice. We're reminded in this passage that Satan is not an equal being on par with God. Satan is not the authority over this world that God is sort of battling and you're not really sure which one is going to win. 
While we in this room should flee Satan, we have no reason to fear him because we know that Jesus is Lord and supreme over him. And the world is not even ultimately uh, governed by nations or governments. I wonder if this morning your happiness or your hope is tied to the successes and failures of a particular nation or a particular government or maybe a particular political party. Friends, this morning we should remember Paul's banner. Jesus is supreme. Jesus is Lord. This is a claim that both encourages us to work for the good of society, and yet it also strangely frees us from the anxieties and the fears and the worries and the passions that so often characterize the world, especially when it comes to politics. Well, verse 16 is the banner, then verse 17 is the choir. Uh, We have here a series of echoing stanzas singing that Jesus is supreme. I mean, you can almost hear it. He created all things. He is supreme. All things were created through Him. He is supreme. All things were created for Him. He is supreme. He is before all things. He is supreme. In Him all things hold together. He is supreme. We can just think about that last phrase for a moment and worship God, worship Christ together. The fact that Jesus holds all things together. He preserves all that has been made. Electrons circle nuclei, gravity pools, planets stay in orbit because right now and since the creation of the world, Jesus has been making it happen. Don't miss the the significance of this claim coming from Paul's pen. I mean, it's one thing to claim that a God holds the universe together. It's quite another thing for Paul to claim that this man, Jesus, someone who had recently lived and died on a cross, at the same time held the world together by his power. That even when he was a child, as, the, as his mother comforted him, as he cried in the manger, the whole world was being sustained by his power. That you and I this morning are, are breathing oxygen because he is the one that is providing it and holding it together and causing it to happen. This is the claim that Paul makes in our passage about Jesus. He is the very image of God. He's the firstborn, the authority over all creation. Everything that was made was made by him, through him, for him, and he is the one that preserves the world. What a person, a God to worship. The language that Paul uses in Colossians 1 to describe Jesus is exalted language. It's, it's like a poem or a song of praise. You can read through this, these verses and just know that Paul can't say it any clearer. Jesus is the creator God. Jesus is the supreme Lord over creation. Now at this point, you may have a question for Paul, especially as you look around the world. How do we make sense of Jesus' supremacy when there's so many problems in the world? There's evil and death and war and sin If Jesus is supreme over this world, why is his world so bad? 
Why does death and destruction seem to reign? Well, if Jesus is Lord, we would expect him to at least provide some sort of answer to that question. And I think in Scripture, he does exactly that. The, the Bible teaches that the presence of death and sin and evil in this world is because of us. It's because of what we did. Even though we were created by God, even though we were created for God, we did not want to live life underneath those terms. And so we rebelled against his supremacy, hoping to be supreme ourselves. This is the story of the Bible. But the fruit of this rejection was not our supremacy. It was death. The God who gave us life as punishment for our sin took what he gave us away, and death entered into the world. God punishes us for our sin. And now all of creation is haunted by sin and death, even as Jesus reigns supreme over it. So have we ruined God's world? Do we now live in a world ruled not by Jesus, but by sin and by death? Sometimes it seems that way, doesn't it? Sometimes we look around and that's exactly what we think. The one thing that we and all other creatures have in common is that we will one day die. But Paul's not finished. Look at verse 18. There's two more he is statements. He is the head of the body of the church, and he is the beginning, firstborn from the dead. So we mentioned earlier that Paul establishes Jesus' supremacy in two steps. First, we see that Jesus is supreme over creation, But secondly, we see that Jesus is supreme over the new creation as well. According to verse 18, he is supreme even over death. This time, however, Jesus is not shown to be supreme simply because of of who he is. He's shown to be supreme because of what he has done. I don't know if you remember, but about 10 years ago, Uh, Prince Harry of Britain joined the British military. Uh, I don't know what my British friends uh, think of that, but I remember that I was very surprised by that. I mean, here you have this guy who's royal, he's respected, he already has people bowing before him, he already has titles, and yet he decides to sign up for the military and and go into battle even, and eventually he earned the, the rank of captain. Well, friends, Jesus is not only Lord by virtue of who he is, he's Lord by virtue of what he has done. You see, with with Jesus, you can't claim that he must earn his right to rule over you. As the firstborn of all creation, the one who who gave you and me life, he already holds that kind of authority. He has the right to rule over us, and yet he does not rule as a king on the sidelines. He does not rule as a God who is removed from the world. Jesus came to earth as a man without sin, and he died a a sinner's death, and then he proved that death does not reign by conquering death when he rose from the dead. He did this, as verse 18 says, so that in everything he would be preeminent, supreme, It means that Jesus reigns supreme over the created world. And even though that created world has fallen into sin and has become rebellious, Jesus, by virtue of his death and resurrection, 
has established his power over this world in a whole new way. He's the Son of God, and he has also earned the title Son of God, not sitting on the sidelines. You'll see, this, you'll see in halfway through verse 18 that Jesus is called the beginning. Well, that's because Jesus' resurrection was only the beginning. It, was, it started something. You know, we may look around this morning and we may see the stench of decay and the reality of death. We shouldn't be deceived by those things. Jesus' resurrection has begun an unstoppable chain of events that will culminate in a future resurrection for all of us who have trusted in Christ. And it will be a new creation in which death and sin will be no more. Do you know where you can see the evidence of that? Do you know where you can see the evidence of Jesus' resurrection work of ushering in his new creation even now? You can just look around. You can see it in the church. A day is going to come when Jesus' new creation reign will be manifested over all of creation. But right now, it is manifested in every corner of the globe through local churches meeting to do the kinds of things that we've done this morning. Jesus reigns supreme over all, but he reigns uniquely supreme over the church because it is there where individuals are seen bowing their knees to Jesus already. Of course, the church is imperfect and it's messy, but it is real and it's really where God works. That's why Harbin's Community Baptist Church exists This church exists to show the reign of Jesus as we worship him together, as we submit before him, as we repent to him. The lordship, the the headship of Christ is manifested now in the church as a sign of what will one day be true of all creation, that Jesus reigns supreme, that he's ruling over all. You know, this is why we do not and we cannot cede headship of the church to anyone other than Jesus himself. Now, we're tempted to do this, maybe more so than we think. Sometimes we're tempted to make the church more about ourselves than about Jesus. The church becomes the place where we go to hear the songs that we like. It's the place where we go to hear sermons that focus more on ourselves rather than Jesus, almost like a, a self-help book. Sometimes we uphold our own desires for certain styles or certain programs, and, and these things become even more important than how well the Word of God is preached. And if things aren't going our way in the church, then we just leave. But friends, the, the church is not ultimately about us or about our personal preferences. The church is primarily a place where we announce through song and word and deed that Jesus reigns supreme over our lives. And then, of course, sometimes we, we try to give the role, Jesus' role of, as head of the church to other people. But the head of the church is not any one individuals or even a group of individuals. Even the elders of a church are not the head of the church. Elders are simply under-shepherds, meant to serve God's people by pointing people to the true head, to Jesus himself. 
And so as you look for elders, as my church looks for elders to appoint in our congregation, friends, we should be looking for the kind of men who are able to serve us by pointing us to the true shepherd, to Jesus himself, the true head of the church. And that's what we see in this passage, that Jesus is supreme over creation and he's supreme over the new creation right now seen in and through the church. Well, Paul is not simply concerned with demonstrating that Jesus is supreme. In fact, we can assume that the Colossian Christians already believed this. I mean, this is, after all, a church that Paul is writing to. These are people that have already placed their faith in Christ. They already take him as Lord. The Colossian Christians, like, like most of us, already confess that. But Paul lays out Jesus' supremacy for the greater purpose of showing Jesus' sufficiency, which is our second point this morning. Jesus is sufficient. Since Jesus is the supreme Lord, he must also be the sufficient Savior. And once again, we're going to see this through two points in our passage. Number one, Jesus is God with us. Look at verse 19. For in him, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Our text has really been building to to this point. Verses 15 to 17 demonstrate that Jesus is God. And we already saw that if we want to see God, we should look to Jesus. And verse 18 tells us what Jesus has done. He's the king that's not content to sit on the sidelines during battle. He exercises his authority in a whole new way over this rebellious world by coming into that world and defeating sin and death. And the effect of that work is that we no longer just look to an invisible God, the the one who is spirit, but we also look to Jesus, the man who is God. At my church uh, in East Asia, we recently finished a, a series in First Kings. Uh, one of the major themes in that book, if you've read through it, is that uh, God is present with his people in and through the temple. That's how God dwells with his people, the nation of Israel. All of Israel's life and worship is centered around that temple because that is where God dwelled. But all of that was pointing to the day when the fullness of God's presence would finally come to dwell among all people. So much of the Old Testament, and you're going to see this as you go through 1 Samuel together, much of the Old Testament is the story of God's people just having to wait. They're waiting on God. Waiting on God to show up. Waiting. And this morning you may be tempted to think that we are still waiting in the same way, but look again at verse 19. In Jesus, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. The fullness of God has come with Christ. There may be some things that we are waiting for, but we are no longer waiting for that. Jesus has come. Sometimes people say that they would believe in God, or or maybe other people say they would help their faith, if, if, they, if God would just sort of come down here and, and show himself, well then, you know, then I'll believe, or then my faith will increase. But friends, that's exactly what God has already done. God is not absent from the world. He has come. 
This is really what separates Christianity from every other religion. We can actually look back into history and see how God has acted. Christianity is based on the historical fact that God came to dwell among us and that he died and that in history he really rose again. This is why Christianity, this is why religion cannot just be sort of a buffet of options. Christianity claims to be true, rooted in a Lord who is sovereign over it and who entered into history. So this morning, for those of us who are Christians, we look to Jesus to see the fullness of God. How do we know what God is like? We look to Jesus. In Christ, especially as we see him in the Gospels, we have the clearest picture of what our God is like. We can look at him and see what God's love is like. If you struggle to know what God's love is like, look at Jesus. We can look at him to to know what God's grace is like, what God's righteousness is like, what God's righteous anger is like, what God's plan is for the world and for our lives. Every divine attribute is found in Jesus. The fullness of the Almighty God, who is maker of heaven and earth, was pleased to dwell in Christ the man, and he came to earth to show it to us. So this morning, some of you came into this room and you're weary, or you're worn, or you're sad, and you've been pleading with God to give you a taste of himself, a a reminder that he is here with you. Friends, this morning there is nothing else to offer you other than Jesus himself, what you already have by faith in him. The fullness of God dwells in Christ and your faith has united you to him so that you right now have access to the fullness of God through Jesus. So this morning, keep your eyes on Christ. Again, this is why Harbin's community must hold Jesus out every single week in songs and in the sermons and in the prayers. Even in your conversations before and after church. Don't just talk about football. Don't just talk about your weekend. Talk about Jesus. That's what we need. We want to keep our eyes on Jesus because we have nothing else to give one another except for Christ himself. So this morning, brothers and sisters, don't let your emotions or your feelings or your weariness or your anxieties cause your eyes to drift away from the one in which the fullness of God is found. Later on in the book of Colossians, Paul writes that once Jesus came to us and completed his work, he ascended into heaven where he sits at the right hand of God. And then Paul tells us that we should keep our minds on him, on that which is above, where Christ is, because that's where the fullness of God is. That's where truth is. So this morning, our weariness, our anxieties, our feelings, sometimes I know that they feel more real. They're present, but they're not. They're not as real as the hope that we have in Christ. They're shifting. Our feelings, our emotions, they are shifting. They can be deceptive, tempting us to turn our minds away from Christ, to believe that God is not really with us, but that is a lie. And you know how we know that? We know that because the fullness of God came in in Christ, 
to dwell with us. And it's also because, sub-point number two, Jesus is God for us. He's God with us, and He is God for us. Look at verse 20. It says, The fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through Him to reconcile to Himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of His cross. This is fact. Jesus shed his blood on that cross 2,000 years ago, and this morning his blood still cries out that this was all for us. Jesus did that for you and for me. Look at verse 21. For the first time in our passage, the subject changes. Paul has constructed this incredible song of praise to Jesus, telling us exactly who he is, and then he applies it to you and me, and you, he says in verse 21, who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him, if indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. The pairing of verses 15 and 20 and verses 21 to 23 is not an accident. Who Christ is and what he has done benefits us. And that's exactly how Jesus intended it to be. He came to reconcile us to God. That is what a life with Christ is. It is a restored relationship with our Creator. Is that what you understand Christianity to be? That it's a restored relationship with God through Jesus? That that truth is all the more remarkable when you understand what we once were. In verse 21, Paul says that we once were alienated and hostile to God. Of course, that's not how God created us. Remember verse 16, we were created by him, we were created for him, but we rejected our creator in favor of sin, and we became alienated and hostile, doing evil deeds. One writer asks us to think about these words in our passage graphically. We were alienated from God. We were to God what little green beings from outer space are to us, strange because of our sin. We were hostile in mind. Our very thoughts opposed the God that created us. We are at war with Him, hating Him and shaking our fists at Him. This is what makes our evil deeds so evil. They stem from a problem that is deep within us, which is also why it's impossible for us to reconcile ourselves to God. Even if we tried changing our behavior, we'd simply be covering up what's deep inside of us. It'd be like covering measles with band-aids. It just doesn't work. It doesn't fix the problem. For reconciliation to happen, God must act to change us, and that is exactly what he has done. Look at verse 21. Jesus has now reconciled us in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. God has acted to restore 
our relationship with him. And he has done this through the death of Jesus on the cross. He has made peace by his own blood, according to verse 20. This reconciliation runs so deep that it fixes us from the inside out. Jesus, he says, will present us holy and blameless and above reproach before him. No longer doing evil deeds because we were once alienated and hostile, but now we are no longer. We've been reconciled to God. Brothers and sisters, this is what it means to be a Christian. God reconciles us to himself through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Our relationship with our Creator is restored because Jesus shed his blood to make peace between us and God. It's really, it is essential that we understand that this is what Christianity is. Having our relationship with God restored does not mean that our circumstances will suddenly improve. Our finances may be unstable. Our bodies may flare up with chronic pains. Our jobs may be on the line. We may lose our jobs. And all of that may happen in the same week. But as Christians, we know that being with Jesus and going through those things is so much better than going through those things without Jesus. You know, Paul himself was in jail when he wrote the letter to the Colossians. And one commentator comments on on this fact. Being reconciled to God through Christ did not mean that Paul was somehow not in jail. He was in jail. The circumstances were bad. But the quality and tenor of his life had changed because his relationship with God had changed. This morning, are you tempted at all to think that, you know, Christianity is true or your faith is sustained only if your life is going well? You know, in Acts chapter 16, Paul is beaten by a crowd and then thrown into prison. And do you know what he did that very night at midnight in Acts chapter 16? He sang hymns to God. That's what he did. I wonder if you know the feeling of having a relationship with a family member or a close friend break. Most of us probably have experienced that. It's heartbreaking. It's painful. It may be one of the the most heartbreaking pains that any of us could ever face. But have you ever had that relationship or a relationship like that restored? And do you remember the, the feeling of joy that came with the restoration of a relationship that you once thought was lost? Friends, this most fundamentally is what Christianity is. That in Christ, God is once again reconciled to us and that he is with us and that he is for us. Friends, this is what a life with Christ is. It is a life of submission to the Lord of all creation who through his death on the cross and his resurrection became the Lord of a new creation, the Lord of the church, of the people who have been restored into a relationship with God. We can center our lives on Christ because he is supreme and he is the sufficient Lord of all who paid our debt 
That's Paul's conclusion to this section in verse 23. This Lord and the reconciliation that he brings is yours if you continue in, in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard. Sometimes people wonder if verse 20 promotes some kind of universalism when Paul says that, that Jesus is reconciling all things to himself. But once again, important Bible study tool, you come to a hard verse, you just keep reading. Verse 23 answers that question. While nothing and nobody lies outside the scope of Jesus' reconciling work, our only hope of reconciliation is found in a life with Jesus, a life of faith, and specifically a life of faith that perseveres with Christ. So friends, this morning it's not a mere profession of faith in Jesus that, that saves us. It is the consistent, continual possession of faith through life and all of its twists and turns and all of its ups and downs, consistent presence of faith in Jesus. That is what saves. This morning, do we have any reason to shift from our hope in Christ? I mean, the answer when we look at a passage like this must be no, because Jesus is God. He created us. He holds our lives together. By his death and resurrection, our greatest problem has been solved. Our greatest enemy has been defeated. Our greatest hope awaits us. And our greatest friend, our King and Savior, the Lord Jesus himself, is with us in this life. Let's pray.